CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. So I said to each one of us today, we must never, ever give up. We must never, ever give in. We must keep the faith and keep our eyes on the prize. So it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latinos, Asian American, or Native American, whether we are gay or straight, we are one people, we are one family, we all live in the same house, not just the American house, but the world house. And when we finally accept these truths, then we will be able to fulfill Dr. King's dream to build a beloved community a nation and a world at peace with itself. That was John Lewis speaking at the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, a remarkable ceremony that unfolded at the uh, Lincoln Memorial, the same place where 50 years earlier John Lewis was one of the major speakers at the March on Washington. We're going to talk about uh, the bracketing of those events as well as his entire life with our panel today. I am so pleased that we were able to assemble the group that we have here to talk about the great John Lewis because every single person today um, had some personal interaction with John in one capacity or another, watched his career, interacted with him. Um, And so it's going to be a really, um, I hope, um, I think it's going to be a terrific show. Let me introduce the people who are with us today. Jim Galloway, of course, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He, a native, by the way, we should say, of uh, Georgia. So I, I'm sorry, not a native, but you came here by the time you were in high school. So you followed John Lewis from right here in Georgia. Fair enough, Jim? Fair enough. I'm an old National Highway guy. That's right. <laughs> so Jim will be with us, of course, as he is every Monday and Friday, you read him uh, in Wednesday and Sunday uh, as, at AJC, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. A former mayor of Atlanta, Shirley Franklin, who also knew John Lewis for quite a long time, is with us. Um, mayor, we're so glad you could be here. Uh, you're, like me, uh, grew up uh, outside of the South. You're from Philadelphia. I grew up in Chicago, so I'm assuming that in the earliest days you watched John Lewis from a distance, Miss Franklin? Actually, the first time I saw John Lewis and heard him was at the March on Washington. I was 18. Uh, we're going to talk more about that, but thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, Michael Thurman, who is the CEO of DeKalb County, but so often when he does our show, is here in another capacity as well. Uh, he is a longtime his, history, historian uh, who has written about Georgia history. Mike Thurman, thank you for being with us. You too are a native of Georgia growing up in Athens. So you got to watch John Lewis from a little closer up, Mike. Oh, the black and white newsreels. And he was more of our age. You know, he was younger. And, of course, we gravitated towards him and Julian Bond because of their youthfulness and the early and critical role they played in the movement. John Pruitt is also with us. Um, Most of you in North Georgia know that John was the longtime anchor at WSB-TV. But, John, uh, before you became an anchorman, you were a reporter at Channel 2 News here. I think you started in about 1964. I think you took a break for a couple years to serve in the U.S. Army, but came back after that. So you followed John Lewis from very close up, very early in his career, all the way uh, through his service in Congress. Thank you for joining us, John. Pleasure to be here, Bill. You're correct. 64 was my first year as a cub reporter in Atlanta television. Started work uh, in July of 64, so I've got an anniversary here somewhere. But uh, it was also the week the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed. And I believe John Lewis moved to Atlanta in 65. So, yes, I got to cover him for virtually his entire political career. 
Yeah, um, and we'll get into all of that. Mayor Franklin, as long as you mentioned it, let's start with you. You said your first awareness of John Lewis, from some distance at, at least, was the March on Washington. Tell us about that experience. So I knew about John Lewis, like uh, similar to what Michael said. We heard we heard about the Student Nonviolence um, Coordinating Committee. We knew about that largely from uh, family uh, Sunday gatherings uh, and debates actually within my family as to whether protest or legal action was the right way to go. And like Michael, I, I was attracted uh, to John because, uh, in, in part, because of his age and he was closer in age uh, to me than the other leaders. Uh, but I attended the March on Washington as a freshman at Howard University with my family. My mother um, insisted that I go with the family instead of with all of my friends. And what was uh, I was most um, excited about was the prospect of hearing John uh, speak because he and the sick members tended to, to be more provocative in their language, um, and they were just fiery. So I was really excited about that. So I was one of, you know, several hundred thousand people who spent the day uh, on the quad, quadrangle right there at the Lincoln Memorial, really just uh, transfixed by all of the speakers and the performers, but especially by uh, Dr. King and, and by John Lewis. Um, so from that time forward, I followed John even more closely as he was leading an organization. Um, and I knew members, founding members of SNCC, uh, from Howard University, uh, Cleve Sellers, Bukhari Sellers' father is one of them, but not the only one, Karen Spellman, several others. So, uh, it was really, it was really an inspiration to have a young person, um, so intimately involved in the leadership of the march. Yeah, yeah, uh, Bill. If I recall, in in, in that in that speech, uh, the March on Washington speech, I mean, uh, the the controversy was over over Lewis's use of the word revolution, uh, which he I think he used uh, quite a bit, and uh, to to kind of the the elders' dismay. But you know, you know, what 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 I find most interesting about about Lewis is that you know he wasn't the most elegant of speakers you know he was his he you would not point to him as a as a as a as a, a an example of of fine rhetoric uh, it, it was what he said and what he represented that, that was that far overshadowed how he delivered it uh, in fact i mean i mean he he never lost that 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 alabama country accent and it's interesting uh, to think of John Lewis as a young, a young man uh, who was really recruited by Dr. King, but obviously had some philosophical differences in terms of how to approach change. Uh, like so many young people, he wanted quicker change and uh, was a bit uh, brazen in presenting that point of view. And in fact, as we all know, at the March on Washington, he was encouraged to tone down the uh, the script that he presented he it was felt it was a little too aggressive uh, particularly concerning uh, president john kennedy who many civil rights leaders felt was a little too reticent a little too cautious in bringing about civil rights reform so uh, michael thurman are are you uh, still uh, with us or have we lost you yeah. okay yeah, good I'm here, um Mike, all right, let me, uh, in, in leading up, I want to give you a chance to talk about your earliest recollections of when you got uh, uh, first started uh, watching John Lewis in action. But let me just uh, uh, tell people, for those who don't remember their civil rights history, SNCC was a student nonviolent coordinating committee. It was a student-led movement. John Lewis was its first uh, leader. And uh, it was in that capacity that he got to speak at the March on Washington. And we're going to talk about more of that in just a minute. But, Michael, why don't you go ahead and give us some of your early impressions? Well, growing up in uh, rural uh, Clark County and, and literally in a sharecropper shack, you know, we saw uh, these men and women 
who were putting their lives on the line. And, and the John Lewis, I remember, of course, was a freedom rider. And, and I just remember my parents. We all knew that they would either all be murdered or beaten, and many of them were. Uh, buses set on fire. And, of course, the bridge and just his youth, I think, Mayor Franklin. And he was the inspiration for my generation because we could see ourselves in him. Uh, Dr. King and Dr. Avanath and others were older, but we saw in him and the students who were sitting in and, and demonstrating uh, for a, gen- a year, they were 10 to 15, 20 years older than us, but we saw an opportunity to participate. And so he was that inspiring voice as uh, Jim Galloway spoke. But, you know, John Lewis spoke with his deeds. You know, you can, you can wind a good speech, and we all, you know, many people can. But the most provocative sermons and speeches are not those that we speak, but it's the speeches we live. And John, Lee, John Lewis lived a great sermon, and he put himself in harm's way and put his life on the line of one of the most basic of all principles, and that's the right to vote and the right for African Americans uh, to have equal access to the opportunities of this nation. So to me, my earliest, he was just, uh, he was people in a black and white movie, uh, newsreel. All of them were to me. And I just, you know, growing up and coming to Atlanta, it was just the most amazing thing to meet these men and women in person. Because I grew up seeing them in a newsreel. And that was the way I knew them growing up. They were so distant. And it's just amazing to me that life brought me to a point where I once told my dad before he died that, you know, John Lewis and Andrew Young, they actually know my name, and my dad was so proud. We knew their names, but I got to a point where they actually knew my name, and that was something. <laughs> I, I I know that feeling so well, Michael Thurman. I was in Chicago during the days of the early days of the civil rights movement. Actually, through it, I I watched them from a distance, and when I came to Atlanta in 1983, and actually got to meet Ralph Abernathy got to meet John Lewis, got to meet Andrew Young, Hosea Williams, uh, C.T. Vivian, who we also need to remember at some point in this show today since he passed away last week. It, the thrill of getting to know these people uh, in person um, it, it was absolutely remarkable. So I understand that feeling completely. John, John Pruitt, you know, there's a lot of attention paid, of course, to the many times that John Lewis was willing to take a beating for uh, to f- in his fight for civil rights. And, and we think most often of the um, Edmund Pettus Bridge, I think, as, the, as an example of that. But in fact, one of the most horrifying episodes in the civil rights movement was the freedom, were the Freedom Rides in 1961 when John Lewis and initially 12 other young people uh, got on a bus and rode through the South to promote uh, 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 integration of interstate buses, of bus uh, terminals, of restrooms, and they were viciously attacked in several cities as they came through the South. At one point, John Pruitt, uh, Lewis was left beaten and bloodied by the side of a road. So uh, the violence against him and what he was willing to endure started when he was uh, still a very young man, John. You know, I'm reminded of an old Stephen Ambrose title, Undaunted Courage. I think it certainly applies to John Lewis and and all of those protesters in the early days of the movement when there was virtually no protection from law enforcement. You went into a small southern town, a freedom rider, for example, trying to use a white restroom and a bus terminal, you would be attacked. And there were no police there to protect you. In fact, In some cases, they aided and abetted the attack. Uh, There was simply no protection for the beatings they absorbed. One of the buses in Amsterdam was burned. It was uh, horrific. And John Lewis was there. I mean, we remember the Pettus Bridge and the episode there. He was beaten uh, in other uh, aspects. I mean, he's lucky to have lived. He almost lost his life in Selma. And when I think of that, I almost get emotional because... As a young newsman, I I covered a lot of that, Uh, the violence, the unreasoning uh, hatred that I saw. And the the thing that really sticks with me about John Lewis and his courageous peers was the fact 
that he was beaten. He took the abuse, verbal, physical, and kept coming back for more, all in the sense of nonviolence, civil disobedience, but not any type of violent reaction. The same could be said for C.T. Vivian, who was slugged by Sheriff Jim Clark. He got up, didn't attack Clark. He simply kept on talking. That was the power of the nonviolent civil rights movement. And I think it's instructive today to see what was accomplished through courage by not reacting to physical abuse, Jim, by yeah, keeping on and staying with your philosophy and, and seeing it through to the end. And John Lewis was the man who did that better than anybody else. You know, there, Bill, there's a, there's an, inter, just a, just, uh, I'm sure it's one of life's great coincidences, uh, but of course, on on Friday, uh, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis died within 24 hours uh, of each other, and and they're the kind of they 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 entered the public realm almost within another 24 hour cycle, uh, back during Selma. Where C.T. Vivian was in Selma, Selma trying to register voters, he was at the courthouse with a with 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 a number of other protesters. As 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 John said, I mean he was he was slugged by the local sheriff on live TV, and it, it was it was recorded. And I think the very next day, John Lewis was there, uh, and that's when that's when Selma to Montgomery began. We actually have sound of that moment in which C.T. Vivian was uh, slugged in the face by Sheriff Jim Clark. Why don't we just listen to it briefly? And then, Mayor Franklin, I want to ask you to uh, take us forward a little in John's career. But let's listen first. You can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back upon the idea of justice. You can turn your back now and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. And we will register to vote. Because as citizens of these United States, we have the right to do it. I'm looking down the line, seeing all the people who've been in jail for felonies. That's what I'm looking at. Precisely right. And if they're and if they're not fit to vote, you'll be able to find that out. But you'll not know it until they're until they're on the register. And many of those have a felony action because your boss made them a felony action, not because they were rightfully accused. <laughs> Mayor, Fra- Mayor Franklin, uh, C.T. Vivian, lecturing Sheriff Jim Clark. He hits him in the face. C.T. Vivian stands back up and goes right at him again, not violently, just telling him what he believes in. And as Jim points out, John Lewis was on the scene almost immediately the next day. The courage of those men and women uh, was a remarkable thing. And it must have been incredibly inspirational for you as a young woman, Mayor Franklin. Well, I was terrified. I was terrified for them. I I remember um, when the Freedom Rides were announced, and I thought, my gracious, this is the craziest (laughs) idea I've ever heard. I know we want the right to vote. I know we want all of the rights, but there is no way they will survive the Freedom Rides. And fortunately, they didn't feel that way. And people like John Lewis and others, went fully forward. And one of the things that's unique about John, even back in those days, John was one of those, he was he was clearly the president of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but John was always working alongside CORE or the NACP or SCLC. He, he was not confined just to his own group. He was always the one that would step forward to work with another group. Lots of times people think there was only one organization in the, in, during those days. And those of you who followed it uh, very closely, especially you, Michael, know that in one town it might be an SDLC chapter and another might be an NACP chapter. Uh, and they found ways to coordinate. And John, John was one of those people who always stepped forward to work with, under the, with the leadership of another person. He was humble, but courageous. And believe me, it wasn't his speech in any point in his life, in my opinion, that made the difference. It was his courage, his heart, and his humility. 
Um, he was just undeterred. And he certainly, he's been an inspiration my entire life. I was inspired at 17 and 18 years old, similarly to those that you uh, have already spoken. Um, and I continue to be inspired by his courage because I thought there is no way they will survive. And guess what? Not only did most, the vast majority of the Freedom Riders survive, uh, with the organization, with the organizations behind them, and the and the ability to organize of uh, people like C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, um, in in just a matter of months, they had desegregated um, the bus and and interstate travel. That's a pretty amazing thing to do, and they put their lives on the line to do it. So I'm glad we're focusing not just on. Um, on the on the rightness of the cause, but also their courage to just push through it. And and Mayor, that that word that she speaks to is courage, and 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 she said something how afraid uh, black people were for them. Uh, obviously, we were pulling for them, but you know it was just insane to go into Jackson, Mississippi, on a bus and with a schedule, and they knew you were coming. And all through the South, so courage. And I want to say something about uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian. You know, he was the intellectual of the group, and whenever I talked to him, it was always about his library and his love of books. And uh, he was such a brilliant man uh, with keen intellect. And and whether it was uh, Reverend Vivian or Congressman Lewis or Reverend uh, Lowry or Mrs. King or Mrs. Abernathy, the one thing they would do is they would talk to you in quiet moments, in quiet times. And uh, one of my most cherished memories, and we're talking about all of them, because collectively, it was the collective brilliance and courage and genius of them that made the difference. And they all had key roles. And that's one of the leadership lessons uh, that I was able to learn by studying uh, these men and women. Uh, they all had strength, and obviously they were human beings, so they all had flaws. But collectively, they basically changed the world really changed the world, and not just America and Georgia. So it's really an important leadership lesson now for all of us that you have to uh, harvest the talents of the people around you to create a movement of the magnitude that can make fundamental change and, and, and something that appears to be intractable in so many ways. So that's what I celebrate, the leadership. And as Dr. Maurice Daniels over in Athens, those nameless, faceless foot soldiers who marched with them. Now, we were celebrating the diversity of the Black Lives Matter protesters, but let's not forget that a, whole, a lot of those freedom riders were white students, were white students who got on the buses with John Lewis and the other freedom riders. So what we saw was not new. If you look at the newsreels of the March on Washington, a significant percentage of the people marched on Washington, the mayor was there, uh, were white. So we've always had that diversity. And, you know, right has no color. And that's one of the things that John Lewis uh, had as a foundation of his philosophy. He transcended race and geography and class and social orientation. That's who he was. Well, you know, uh, thank you for saying that, Michael, because that's exactly why I uh, wanted to use the sound that we played at the top of the show, which John Lewis embracing in that 50th anniversary moment, uh, people of uh, all, all, all races, uh, ethnicities, uh, 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 gender identification. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you reinforce that now. Uh, Jim, uh, we've talked about the march and his speech at the March on Washington a couple of times, but let's before we have to take a break, let's uh, zero in on it a little bit. Um, uh, he, he, again, he was head of SNCC. As, as Shirley Franklin has pointed out, she was eager to see him because SNCC was a little bit more aggressive in their uh, philosophy about how to confront racism and bigotry, and she was a young student herself. Um, uh, Jim, A. Philip Randolph organized that march. He was a civil rights leader, a labor organizer, and uh, and so when John Lewis first gave them the script for his speech, which needed to be approved, they were a little bit horrified <laughs> because he took it right to President Kennedy, as you say, to the Senate, to the, Senate uh, to the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, in his speech saying, who is our party? Who represents us? He used in the speech 
that he had written, talked about revolution. He talked about if we don't get our rights, we are going to essentially set a fire nonviolently through the South demanding our rights. And so he had to be toned down a bit, Jim. I'm going to play what the, an excerpt from the speech he gave in 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Here he is in 1963. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. When the Delta, Mississippi, in Southwest Georgia, in the black stuff of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses on the march for jobs and freedom. If we do not get meaningful legislation out of this Congress, the time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. Jim, you hear in that speech uh, exactly what we're hearing from protesters marching in streets of cities around the country today. It was a militant speech in many ways, and it was toned down. Yeah, and the fact that we're still ha- that we're still having to ask for it is is rather uh, rather uh, disturbing. But but you know, I mean, um, Mayor Franklin used the used the word courage, and and so did uh, Mr. Thurman here. I, I would throw out another word, another another adjective uh, about John Lewis, and that is relentless. Uh, it was it, 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 just because he was nonviolent didn't mean that he was uh, he was compromising. All right. And I think that's one feature of his career. I mean, when he came to, uh, I mean, you know, all the all these all these great leaders of the '60s kind of morphed into public elected officials in the '70s and '80s. And uh, when 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 Lewis uh, became uh, a member of the Atlanta City Council, one of his first fights was over what became the Freedom Parkway, uh, Jimmy Carter's Free, Freedom Parkway, which is actually is is the John Lewis. Uh, has John Lewis's name on it? Uh, I mean, he was. Uh, I mean, clearly, if if you're if you're if you're a young person listening today, you know John Lewis as the, as the person who who uh, said he would never recognize Donald Trump as 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 president. He was the guy who sat on the House floor four years ago. Uh, in, in a sit-down sit protest over gun violence at at at, at age seventy-six, you know the the guy the guy just did not give up. It's interesting uh, historical footnote here when you talk about the young John Lewis, SNCC student uh, organization, a little bit more aggressive, uh, less patient, but. When he came to Atlanta as head of SNCC, I believe in 1965, late 60s, he broke with SNCC because SNCC changed. SNCC became more radical as leaders such as Stokely Carmichael and later H. Rat Brown took over SNCC. Uh, Lewis departed. Uh, that was a, a clean break with an organization that had taken a, a substantial turn toward, um, well, frankly, more violent rhetoric and more violent action. So John Lewis sure. was impatient, he was aggressive, but he knew where to draw the line. Uh, I've got to get to a break, but surely uh, John uh, is right, uh, but I think uh, Stokely Carmichael pretty well forced Lewis out of SNCC. He, he out-politicked uh, he, he out, uh, uh, Lewis and pushed him aside. Uh, that didn't stop John Lewis, obviously, surely. No, it didn't. Um, and and uh, there was a lot of discussion. That was a, a I mean, if you hear Julian, I heard Julian talk about the leadership of uh, SNCC. The bottom line is that their leadership was evolving and their philosophy was evolving. This was not a constant. They didn't 
have a philosophy that they held the entire time. Glad to talk about it more when we, when we come back. All right. Oh, well, thank you. We do have to get to a break. So uh, uh, let's do that right now. We'll come back and talk more about the life and legacy of John Lewis. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind talking about the legacy of John Lewis with former Atlanta City Mayor Shirley Franklin, with DeKalb County CEO and historian, Michael Thurman with uh, John Pruitt, former anchor and longtime uh, Atlanta-based TV reporter, and of course with Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I I do want to move into uh, Lewis's political career uh, for a few minutes. Um, Jim Galloway already mentioned that, uh, Shirley Franklin, this was as you were coming in. Uh, you, you had been working with uh, Maynard Jackson, of course, but were there when Andy Young became mayor. And, of course, John Lewis opposed the what was going to be a highway uh, taking people to what was going to be the Carter Library. And uh, city count, he, was out, he joined the city council. He had been elected in 1981, and he doggedly refused to go along with Mayor Andrew Young, who had opposed it in his election but seemed to want to go ahead and cut a deal with former President Carter to let the road go through. And John Lewis even refused Shirley Franklin a personal phone call from Carter saying, please help me with this. And Lewis said to him, can't do it, Mr. President. A remarkable kind of show of strength. It was part of a huge story in those days, Shirley. It was quite a day, actually, uh, lobbying for <laughs> the passage of the uh, what we what is the uh, John Lewis Freedom Parkway that leads to the Carter Presidential um, Museum and Library. Uh, was not an easy vote. It was a split vote. I don't remember exactly the vote, but. Lewis, uh, uh, Congressman Lewis gave a rousing speech. Um, I, I listened earlier when he said, you know, he wasn't known for his speaking. Well, he shook the house that day. Um, he, <laughs> he was adamant that he had given his commitment when he was running and that he believed that the neighborhoods, primarily neighborhood activists and leaders who were opposing it, expected him to live up. Uh, to his commitment, and he would not change his mind. And it's been said that Andy Young gave a similar commitment and changed his mind. And Andy Andy says that that's the only time he remembers disagreeing with John uh, about anything. But John did not persuade enough um, of his of his colleagues to turn down the um, the the plan. But the result of his opposition certainly made it a boulevard and as opposed to a roadway that was originally planned. I mean, the, that parkway had been on the books at Georgia Dot for 40 years or so. Uh, so it was not a new plan. And the presidential library just became the impetus for, for the city really considering it. So... John was adamant, and he was brilliant in his speech. John didn't always win his argument, but you knew that you had been in a fight uh, with someone who was committed and who had integrity when John was on the other side. Um, Michael, John, and Jim, and and Shirley Frank, I want to move forward in the political career because um, we come to an important moment, Michael, in John Lewis's life. In 1980, um, Weich Fowler had been the uh, representative of the 5th Congressional District for a very long time. He was white as the district was uh, majority African-American, and it became clear at a certain point that he was going to have to cede that seat to an African-American he eventually, in 1986, just did that by deciding to run for the U.S. Senate. He won his race. 
And that opened Michael Thurman, that congressional seat, the 5th District seat in 86. Uh, 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 it was an open seat. And John Lewis and Julian Bond, colleagues in the civil rights movement, decided, both of them, to go after the seat. And it turned out to be a very bitter, and for many of us who watched it, a, a troubling campaign to watch unfold, given how close they had been and how important they each were to the movement. Michael? Yeah, I was just uh, really entering uh, state politics myself, but we watched it closely. Now, you know, from a distance, uh, Julian Bond, uh, who was just this amazing, uh, popular, you know, handsome, uh, sophisticated man uh, who glib and, you know, could, was extremely eloquent, took on John Lewis. And I would suspect from the outside looking in, I thought that uh, Julian Baum would walk away with it without much contest. But something the mayor just said, is, and uh, Jim Galloway said, is that John Lewis is relentless. I mean, that, that's, his, that's his, his, his hallmark. They've never given up, never. And if you notice the speech that's being played often, uh, he speaks of, with Churchill, never give up, never give up, never give up, keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. And oftentimes when you come from a tough background or, or impoverished background, you learn that, you, you accept the fact that there are going to be setbacks and disappointments. Actually, uh, you calculate those along the way because, and your only real option to success is determination and relentlessness. And that race, really shows that, and going back to the uh, Freedom Parkway and the fact that John Lewis uh, maintained that commitment to community activists, I think ultimately influenced the outcome of the race and his ability to reach out to the uh, Jewish community and others uh, at the end of the day helped to fuel uh, that victory that was unexpected in many quarters from people who were looking out and looking in. Yeah, nobody really uh, thought Lewis could win that race, going up against the urbane, sophisticated media darling Julian Bond, as smooth as silk and articulate. Uh, and he had the endorsements of uh, who's who of American politics. And here's John Lewis, uh, a workaday uh, politician, doing his due diligence, paying his dues, and but not a spectacular guy. And when you line them up against each other in terms of their charisma, Bond went hand down. So Lewis knew he had to get into a runoff. There were a number of candidates for the race, and he was able to do that and defeated Bond in that runoff with a substantial number of white votes. He carried the district on the white vote primarily. Uh, it was a fascinating race to watch these two old friends vying in such a, a bitter way, and it became bitter. I'll never forget a night in 86 during that campaign when I moderated a debate between Lewis and Bond in the runoff. And Bond brought a book to that debate. It was uh, Shirley MacLaine memoir, which referred to her dancing with John Lewis, and she said he was stoned. Well, Lewis later said, I was not stoned. I'd had a couple of beers and denied any reference to being stoned. But Bond had the book in the studio and made sure Lewis knew he had that book. He never referred to it in the debate. It was an interesting little sidelight of the psychological warfare that was going on there. But it was a bitter campaign. The two men never actually reconciled after that, to my knowledge. Uh, they went their separate ways. But it was, it was the hinge of history because having won that race, Lewis went on to serve 34 years in Congress. Yeah, to, to me, to me, it was a it was it was kind of an interesting uh, contest of the of, of of the intellectual of the civil rights movement versus versus the 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 the, the more of a the more of the street fighter and 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 I if if I'm not right correct, uh, uh, Lewis kind of represented uh, more of the middle class vote that was still that was still uh, existent in the in the city at at that point. Uh, but I would love to hear from Shirley on this because she had a front front row seat in all of that. Uh, it was it was just a it was a fascinating race that was. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, the New York Times had somebody here full time doing this race. Well, it was. Um, thank you. I mean, it. Um, 
David, my uh, former husband, Maynard, uh, lots of people were with Julian. In those days, believe it or not, women were not in the strategy room. So what I knew about it, I knew from side conversations as opposed to being a part of the strategy. But it was a bitter race, um, but it was a race grounded in what both of them believed in, which is that the people had the should have the opportunity to choose and that the candidates ought to present themselves to the general public and the people. And that might have some relevance uh, for another um, part of this conversation. I'm not quite sure, John, that um, they never reconciled. My recollection is that things moved over as they aged. Uh, these were people who had fought for the right for the for everyday people to vote. So this was as much grounded in myth in that, and they weren't. Neither one of them, to my knowledge was ever in favor of this thing called machine politics, where um, a group of kind of political elites make all of the decisions. Uh, I know John felt that strongly, and having spent some time with Julian in his last years, I'm pretty certain he did too. So it was a tough race because they talked about each other. Uh, personal issues came up about behavior whether it was being stoned or being stoned. Um, and, uh, but I think they got over that. Uh, I think they got over that. And, and, they, and they lived to see literally thousands of African-Americans and others uh, be able to take advantage of an open uh, democracy that allows people like me who had never dreamed of running for office to run for office in Atlanta. I'll stop there. Um, I, I want to do this. Um, Michael Thurman, I know that uh, you, where you would like to, Shirley Franklin gave you an opening. We do have <laughs> to have an election now uh, to uh, fill the John Lewis seat. Um, and I, I do want to talk about that. Um, before we turn to politics, we're going to have to take a break. And, and so could we, Michael Thurman, you're welcome to start, put a period on this part. We know what John Lewis is went on to do after winning that 1986 election, serving more than three decades as a member of the U.S. House, one of its most progressive uh, members, uh, voting against the uh, Gulf War, voting against uh, the Iraq War, supporting uh, 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 the civil rights legislation that um, we're going to look at again. We'll be talking about a new civil rights legislation that would restore provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Um, so we know about what a distinguished career he had in passionately advocating important causes. Um, so why don't we just for a minute talk about his legacy. We'll take our break and come back and we'll talk about what the next steps are. And we'll start with you, Michael. And because we're sort of limited, I'm going to ask you all to kind of be concise in what you say about this. The next word is integrity. Uh, throughout his career, I don't recall any even allegation, much less uh, indictments or anything around uh, the misuse of public funds or using his position for personal gain. So along with integrity, as the mayor mentioned, I add the word uh, courage. I add the word integrity. A man of high integrity who held public office and his ethics were never challenged. Well, I can say that in my career of covering politicians, I never met anyone like John Lewis, who was devoid of ego, uh, had no artifice about him, was completely focused on the mission of serving people. And that made a deep impression on me. And we talk about his bombastic speaking style, but he was the most soft-spoken, modest politician I ever met. And I think in his comments, when he's not at the microphone, he was the most effective. He was a persuasive guy who, who really influenced so many people and, and the movement itself. I will make mine quick. He never cashed out. Mm. He never sought personal gain. Uh, <laughs> mm. Shirley Franklin, you get the loved, last word. I, I would say that he also loved people. He loved people of all backgrounds. He loved their culture. He loved their history. 
and he never lost his relatability, his ability to connect with people. So um, I really appreciate all of these words about John Lewis. And of course, we'll have more of them in the week ahead as more of our panels uh, talk to some extent about him and the next steps uh, that we're taking in, uh, in Georgia uh, in, in uh, dealing with his legacy. But for now, let's put, it, put a period on that. Let's take a break. And when we come back, let's talk for just a couple of minutes about the fact we do have now a fifth district election coming up. Uh, and we should uh, talk about the dynamics of what that might look like. You're listening to Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. We've only got a few minutes left in the show with John Pruitt, Shirley Franklin, Michael Thurman, and Jim Galloway. Um, but we, we should talk just for a minute or two about the election. Uh, John Lewis, of course, was the Democratic nominee, the incumbent running for re-election uh, in the next Congress. And uh, upon his death, a, there are two elections, I believe, Michael Thurman, that need to be held. One, I think the governor has to call a special election to fill a very short vacancy between whenever he calls the a special election and the start of the new Congress. And, and then the John Lewis seat itself, the, the, the position in the ballot that he held has to be uh, replaced as well. Uh, Michael, there's already a lot of jockeying going on, and I know this is something you're very concerned about. Uh, absolutely. And Mayor Franklin referenced it. Really, it's an election and a C-election. And I have grave reservations that the legacy of John Lewis, quite frankly, is being undermined if we allow uh, just a small group of people to select his successor. And what I am proposing, and we're sending it out today, that under Georgia Code uh, 212-504, what really should happen, I believe, is that a, the last of the great civil rights lions, uh, Andrew Young, named to be placed on the ballot. Uh, obviously, he's going to win on the first Tuesday in November. We should ask uh, uh, Ambassador Young that after the vote is certified, he withdraws his name and allow a special election to be held. Uh, I think the Democratic Party is really trying to go a bridge too far. Their role should be to preserve the seat in the Democratic column by replacing John Lewis' name with someone like Andrew Young or even a Shirley Franklin uh, and allow them that name to be placed on the ballot. They obviously will win the race in November. After the vote is certified, if they will then step down, then the voters of the 5th District will be able to elect the successor, someone who can carry on the tradition of a man who gave his life for the right to vote, to do anything else. All right. I've got to interrupt. Yes. I, I'm sorry. I need to interrupt very because we're so short on time, but I want to make sure our listeners understand this. What you're proposing, Michael, is we know that by the end of today, by state uh, law, the Democratic Party of Georgia has to name someone to fill that spot on the ballot for John Lewis. But you're saying that person should end up not be the person who holds the seat, assuming they win for the next two years but in fact should be replaced with a special election in January where all the people have a chance. Is that about, just yes, tell me I'm right on that. Isn't that right? The party does not have to select someone to serve the next two years. They really only need to select someone to place the name on the ballot. That's all they need and are required to do to mm. preserve. The Shirley the Franklin, he mentioned your name. <laughs> He mentioned, look, he mentioned your name. Would you be willing to do that uh, te as a temporary, as a, essentially down? a yes. placeholder? Would I step down? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the law like Michael does. I think there is a lot of interest in having voters decide. And I also hear, I hear that from a lot of sources. 
Yeah, very very quickly, uh, Bill. Uh, Michael Collins, uh, chief of staff to to, to to Representative Lewis, he's endorsed this idea. I, I think what 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 you see a lot of Democrats looking at is uh, is an uneasy electorate, and and a situation that in in which Democrats could have their own kind of Kelly Loeffler situation, where they anoint a candidate. And by anointing that candidate, kind of uh, create create a, a, a backlash. All right, yeah, um, just... John Pruitt. We're really short on time, but you know what? This is in. They're all saying it. This would be the best tribute you could give to John Lewis. Let the people pick the next congressman. Yeah, because stating the obvious here, the power and incumbency in a congressional seat is vast, and to have an appointee in that position. It's an incredibly important decision, and I can certainly see the wisdom in what Michael Thurman is proposing. Well, we are going to watch that play out. As if we didn't have enough interesting things happening in the 2020 election cycle in Georgia, here is another wrinkle that we will watch carefully. Michael Thurman, you were scheduled to do this show later this week with your good friend Sam Olins, and I'm going to keep that invitation alive, even though you're here today, because you would have more of a chance to talk about all this then. Will you come back again still on Thursday? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm all right. Wonderful. Michael. Well, that was my next point. Shirley Franklin, it was such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much for being part of this conversation. John Pruitt, what a pleasure to see my old colleague again and have you on the show John, you can come back anytime you want. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much. And Jim Galloway, Jim Galloway, I'll see you again on Friday. Boy, are we going to have a lot to talk about in the weeks ahead. That's it. We're completely out of time. I'm Bill Nygut. Until tomorrow, take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.